Season in Between is an Exit 52 production written and produced by me, Jake Luke. The information included is a byproduct of rigorous research, the sources of which you can find indexed in the show notes. Special thanks are owed to my teammates, Spencer, Eric, Brian, and Taylor, for always being there to offer up some help, some laughs, or both. This podcast is dedicated to the Baltimore sports fan, to anyone who feels stuck in the middle in life, and to the enduring memory of Steve McNair, who helped me fall in love with Ravens football in earnest. Episode 1, Billick and Bishotti. How do you define success? Is it a concrete achievement, something that can only be measured by a bottom line? Is it a bit more abstract, maybe a feeling you get or a lesson you learned from an experience that had a profound impact on you? Maybe it's the confluence of those things or the legacy that you leave behind, regardless of how much you accomplish based upon your own standards. In that sense, maybe there is no one way to define it. Or maybe that ambiguity is something unsuccessful people like to lean into to give themselves some solace in the face of their inabilities to achieve their goals. Right or wrong, that seems to be how some of the top sportsmen across history seem to see things. Or do they? Vince Lombardi, among others, once said, Winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. You'd think that would tell you all you need to know about the psyche of a legendary football coach right there, but amazingly, he's also attributed this very similar but distinctly different gem of wisdom. Winning isn't everything, but wanting to win is. It's understandable that someone like Lombardi would have multiple famous quotes on the topic of something like winning and success, and that not all of them would necessarily line up directly one-to-one. After all, the job of a football coach before he hires his staff, installs his schemes, meets with the media, and everything else under his powerful purview is to inspire. In few other sports do we see locker rooms of such great numbers, with combinations of men from any and all socioeconomic backgrounds come together to unite towards a common goal. In the case of the NFL, that common goal is obvious. To hoist the trophy that bears the name of the man that I just mentioned, and be the last of 32 teams standing as that year's Super Bowl champion. And it's the job of the head coach to make these men of disparate backgrounds, belief systems, and classes of talent to believe in that reality. The team that earns said honor, of course, considers that year a success in their book, and well, they should. With a single elimination tournament predicated heavily on home field advantage serving as its format, winning a Super Bowl is one of the most difficult things to accomplish in professional sports. Part of what makes it so is all the pieces that need to fall into place, including off-season acquisitions via free agency in the draft, the health of a roster over the course of 20-plus weeks of a brutal sport, and certain more unpredictable factors such as the bounce of an oblong leather object, which is so often so unkind to teams that feel deep within their hearts that they deserved better. They feel this way because of logical factors. Our quarterback had a historic year. Our defense was far and away the best in the league. Our turnover differential dictated just how dominant we were. But so often, it's the teams and fan bases who reflect on such factors that are the ones looking back and wondering, what could have been? Often, it's something that seems so illogical that led to their downfall, something they never saw coming. That quarterback who had a career year has a few fluky turnovers. The defense that was so stout throughout the season were victim to a dumb mistake or two that proved to be the difference. 
That all-important turnover differential proved to be no more predictive for a cold-weather playoff game than the meaningless score predictions that the hosting TV network's panelists engage in prior to kickoff. Football is, in many ways, the most unpredictable sport to have ever been played, and the NFL has capitalized on that in such a way that they've captivated an American audience week in and week out, from the dog days of summer to the darkest days of the calendar in early winter. Many like to joke around or be cynical about this, but repackaging unpredictability in such a way that you can sell roughly half your league's fan bases on varying degrees of championship ambition is an enviable feat of marketing. The new head coach you hired, the free agent you signed, that first-round draft pick you snagged in April— they could all prove to be the missing piece in tasting the glory of a Super Bowl at last. But even the most optimistic fans have to know that the 24-7, 365 marketing cycle of weaponized hope the NFL employs is largely fluff, albeit very high-quality fluff at that. But many other fans will tell you there's a difference between being disappointed against off-season expectations versus the disappointment that comes from knowing the potential your team had to go and win it all and still seeing them come up short. Hope is a cousin of ambition, and it's a thrilling feeling when that murky, loosely ironed out feeling of off-season ambition gives way to legitimate Super Bowl hopes late in the fall, when your team is rolling and the vibes are peaking. But as many who have been in this situation know, another close cousin to hope is disappointment, and more often than not, the outcome for a sports team is to feel the latter. No one sinks into these depths quite like the players and the coaches, though. Those who sacrificed the time away from their families, made efforts to get their bodies and minds right, and sunk emotional energy into the wild swings of an NFL game week in and week out for months on end. To still come up short when it looks like all of that work might actually, against the odds, pay off? It's devastating. For some, these feelings of intense disappointment are offset by other championship years, still hurting the subject, no doubt, but also contextualized against what they've already achieved. Ray Lewis, tell me about this performance by you and your defense today. Hey, man, there's, there's nothing like this right now. I mean, it's just, it's just ecstatic the way we just come out and we played today. It was incredible just to see the way we just came out and played as a team. But this defense has been doing this all year and never, never got the credit. But it's one thing they can never take away from us. We're the best ever. Best ever right now. There are others who never get that feeling of victory and perhaps hang on for a few more years chasing that high that they sometimes get so close to but never get to experience. It is caught by Dyson. Can he get in? No, he cannot. Mike Jones made the tackle. And the Rams have won the Super And then there are those lucky few who do hang on and ultimately capitalize, going out on top or close to it in a fashion that any and all can say they've dreamt of at some point. On first down, Kaepernick, going to drop back, going to throw it, middle of the field, and he's intercepted by Reed. Reed had just tied a postseason record for most interceptions as the New Orleans native... As is the case with many of the never-was teams throughout league history, there were many such examples of this on one specific team that you're probably pretty familiar with. This was a team with a mountain of a legacy that to this day defines their franchise, and in some cases shackles them with the expectations of identity. That identity is one of strong defense, forged on the back of a historic season that cemented them as one of the best in the history of the game. This was a team with a complimentary bruising offense that felt they were a piece away at the quarterback position and made their move for a savvy, well-respected veteran to find it. 
This was a team with an accomplished but abrasive head coach who no doubt felt that he was running out of rope with a new ownership structure and needed another championship to secure his job and perhaps his own individual legacy for the long term. This was the 2006 Baltimore Ravens, and why, despite all the promise they showed, this was a year that wound up being nothing more than just a season in between. Heading into the 2006 season, the pressure was on within the walls of the Baltimore Ravens organization. By that time, a club that just a decade earlier had been little more than an expansion team was under the microscope set in place by perennial championship expectations. In a way, that was an enviable position. Baltimore had gone from playing in rusted-out Memorial Stadium in the mid-1990s to hoisting a Lombardi trophy in the year 2000. Since then, they had been chasing that glory yet again, to decidedly mixed results. In the five years since, Baltimore had just one playoff win to show for those high expectations of themselves, a difficult pill to swallow for many, not the least of which was a new majority owner and a leadership structure that was all still in place from the Super Bowl year. As much as fans and media wanted more from the Ravens over the course of the early to mid-2000s, nobody wanted it more than this group of men. Part of this group was the longtime tandem of general manager Ozzie Newsom and head coach Brian Billick, two men of distinct and largely opposite temperament, but equal hunger for success in the cutthroat landscape that the modern NFL had become. Well, cutthroat may be a bit of a dramatic term, but it's not too far off from how high stakes things were and continue to become more of in the league that within the last 20 or so years had become America's primary athletic export, supplanting baseball in that role. With only 16 weekly regular season installments and six precious playoff spots to go around per conference, success in the NFL was hard-earned, and the magnifying glass under which teams were judged grew larger and larger along with the evolution of the media landscape with the dawn of the internet about a decade prior. Fan interest was up, profitability continued to grow to points that the modern era of the league's founding men couldn't have envisioned at the end of the 60s, and it was the perfect time to stamp yourself as one of the premier franchises on offer in order to capitalize on the tidal wave of popularity. The Ravens had built their identity as a defensive-oriented franchise, which, while very sound and logical, and something that propelled them to that Super Bowl victory, wasn't exactly guaranteed to capture the hearts and imaginations of football fans writ large. It wasn't for lack of trying, though. Brian Billick was an offensive-minded coach who had struck gold with a perfect situation in Baltimore. Well, almost perfect. The loquacious leading man of the Ravens franchise was undoubtedly great at what he did, but he had yet to prove himself to be a quarterback whisperer, or at the very least pair up with Newsom to find the perfect tenor for what they needed at the position. They'd take multiple swings at it, both within the 2000 season and several times after, and by 2006, his eighth year on the job, Billick was decidedly feeling the heat for the inability to find or manufacture a solution to Baltimore's forever problem at the most important position in sports. The Ravens were a stable and patient organization, not quick to fire anyone as a short-term solution and not prone to infighting within its leadership structure. So how had things reached a, relative to the stead and sturdy Ravens, contentious point like this? It began when a young entrepreneur by the name of Steve Bishotti came in, or more specifically had officially come all the way into the picture a few years prior. In March of 2000, the then 39-year-old Baltimore native was approved by the league to purchase a minority 49% stake in the Ravens, with an option to become the club's majority owner four years down the line. 
The tech recruiting maven would exercise that option in 2004, purchasing the remaining 51% of the club from Art Modell for a sum of $325 million. Owning a sports team was something that intrigued me, he said at the time, having already been approached about potentially purchasing the Florida Marlins. When your hometown comes up, obviously that sends you over the top. But despite the gaudy sums of money and the pomp and prestige that came from owning a sports franchise, Bashadi was universally described as a disarming and down-to-earth figure. His modest, middle-class Baltimore upbringing was earmarked by a few things, namely the loss of his father to leukemia at age 8, and, perhaps as a result of that tragedy, a dogged work ethic aimed at getting the most out of his own life. After attending Salisbury University on Maryland's eastern shore, Bishotti and a cousin founded the technological staffing firm Aerotech out of a makeshift basement office in 1983, when Steve was just 23 years old. The company quickly surpassed $1 million in sales, and it was officially lift off from there for Bashadi's professional aspirations. But while they would take him far over the next 20-odd years, the multimillionaire never forgot who he was or where he came from. Some of his earliest memories were attending Baltimore sporting events with his father, where he learned Orioles and Colts fandom not just as a side interest, but as a matter of civic pride. Around the time his business career was kicking off, the Colts, who had been seen as an untouchable public trust, a piece of Baltimore since the 1950s, were whisked away from town in the dead of night at the whim of Robert Ursay, a meddling and cantankerous owner who had been at the center of destroying a love affair between the team and city since purchasing the club in 1972. Bishotti has actually spoken to this situation as someone who had grown up as a Colts fan, and his magnanimity on the topic and understanding of Ursay's side of things seems to be a glimpse into the fact that he understands just how much of a business sports actually are. I wasn't crushed when the Colts left town because at the time they were awful, he said. I didn't like it, but I also felt if the city had been willing to renovate Memorial Stadium for Ursay, he wouldn't have left. It might have cost $10 million to do it, and they didn't do it. So I didn't hate Ursay the way some people did. When the Browns came here because Cleveland wouldn't do anything for Art Modell, I understood. I also believed that Cleveland would get a new team as soon as it agreed to build a stadium. I didn't think people there would go 12 years without a team the way we had here. John Eisenberg was a columnist with the Baltimore Sun at the time, and remembers the main difference between Bashadi and his predecessor in Modell being a pretty big one. Money, and lots of it. I'll tell you, uh, I mean, uh, the franchise being sold, always a huge thing in the NFL. And uh, what was immediately apparent, I mean, the NFL, uh, these owners, they don't let anybody into their club unless they've got enough money and they trust them. And so they, they, they'll turn down people uh, a lot. And so it, it was pretty clear Bashadi had just a ton of money. And that was the biggest thing that needed to happen really from the, from the get-go through the Super Bowl years and the early 2000s. The Ravens still are model you know, was not sitting on a huge pile of cash. You know, that's the reason he left Cleveland. And, uh, you know, he came here and they were sort of behind the eight ball a little bit financially. And that was just no longer the case. Uh, it just changed everything for the Ravens. The most important thing, I mean, Bashadi is an owner. Uh, we didn't know what type of owner he would be, uh, that he would be sort of such a, a really a classic, you know, just stay out of the way, let your people do the, do their thing. Uh, that was, I mean, we didn't know. I mean, he had to lay down that footprint before we knew what it would be. The most important thing uh, from the outset was uh, the Ravens' financial issues are finally over. I mean, this influx of cash is what is needed. Now with the Miami Dolphins, Wade Harmon is one of the longest-tenured coaches in Ravens history and was there from the beginning with Bashadi. He has only fond memories of his former team's owner. Well, I think uh, I think there's a yeah, you know, I think it helped a lot. Of, you know, Art was great, and they did a great job. And I, you know, I don't have anything but great things to say about the models and the way they treated me and the organization and the stuff through there. 
Um, I know they had some financial issues with the move, you know, from from Cleveland and stuff that that they had a hard time overcoming and had to do some sell, you know, when they had to sell. Um, but um, Mr. Mashadi was, I mean, he's outstanding. I mean, it was never going to be an issue. I don't think, you know, when my whole time there that, you know, it was going to be a money issue. We weren't going to spend to the cap or over cash over cap or anything like that. I and mean, he was going to give us every, every resource available, you know, for us to be successful. Um, you know, first class organization treated, treats us all, all well, uh, still does, I'm sure. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a great organization and, and I think that all comes from the top. Despite his nonchalant attitude towards what was a very emotionally charged topic for his fellow Baltimoreans, when he was ready to assume ownership of the Ravens in the early 2000s, Bishotti had at the very least learned from the foibles of Ursay and even his predecessor, Art Modell, to an extent. There is a difference between being involved and being in charge, Bishotti told the Baltimore Sun in a 2004 profile piece as his run as majority owner was just beginning. I want to be very involved. I just don't want to be in charge. You can't hire talented people and overrule them with less talents, like myself. At the beginning of his tenure, the young owner backed up his words and was wise to do so. The Ravens were just four years removed from winning a Super Bowl in the year 2000, a completely unexpected championship run that was the product of an iconic team. It had been built by Ozzie Newsom as the calm and unassuming architect who had been quietly running the organization's football operations since 1996. It was brought over the top by Billick, whose unapologetic and swaggering attitude facilitated a necessary culture change when he took the reins in 1999. We had a team that uh, was a classically underachieving team, had a lot of good athletes, had a number of pro bowlers, but was, had not yet to have a, a winning season. So there was a mindset that had to be changed, not only with the players, but with the organization. No longer would the Ravens be the new kids on the block, fresh off of a move over from Cleveland and playing in a decrepit old stadium that had been defined by a different franchise decades earlier. People just don't have an understanding of how when he took over, I mean, Ted Marchabrota for the first three years was just a guy to come in and not get ripped. And, and, and not say something stupid and not be a jerk and to put a, a, a quality, just a, a team that at least plays hard on the field. Uh, you know, they, they, they were underfunded, under, you know, didn't have the talent of other people, uh, you know, take some bullets here, just be, be a good guy. And so that was Ted. So really, uh, in, in many respects, uh, the, the Ravens history sort of began when Billick is brought in because he's the first young sort of uh, outside-the-box thinking coach that they had. And what he brought to them was, you know, forget all, you know, forget the what whatever our situation has been and stop talking about the Cleveland stuff. And, you know, we didn't have a stadium for two years and, and all this. You know, we're going to win. We're going to win. I mean, it was that's all I've ever done, and that's what I'm going to do now. And so that mindset was just a revelation. This new iteration of the team would take on the hard-charging persona of its unwaveringly cocky head coach, and that attitude would translate over well to the field. You know, I can tolerate a lot of things. I can, I, I can tolerate, tolerate arrogance, uh, conceit, greed, right? But self-pity is one that just, just chaps my ass. The uh, pundits and the experts are going to pick this apart and talk to me about some kiss-ass third-down percentage or red zone. Hey, f them all. <laughs> Put that in NFL films. Bleep it any way you want, okay? On every fucking camera turned off. Every every one of them turned off. Turned off! Okay? Right now. Fuck the Titans! This was a locker room culture that was strong when things were going well, but could understandably wear a bit thin when it didn't translate to the bully ball that Baltimore had become accustomed to winning with. 
And after several consecutive disappointing seasons, that's where the Ravens found themselves heading into 2006. Their first game would be played in Tampa Bay at Raymond James Stadium, the site of their Super Bowl victory six years prior, and they would be taking on a Buccaneers team that had won a Super Bowl of their own in a very similar fashion to Baltimore over about the same course of time. It wouldn't be an easy game as the Bucs had gone 11-5 in 2005 and would have home field advantage in the sweltering late summer sun of South Florida. The Ravens quietly felt good about where they were, what with a punishing defense that they had built back up into a juggernaut after a post-championship purge, and, perhaps most importantly, the most serious of a professional at quarterback as the team had maybe ever had. A lot would have to break right for this team to return to the playoffs for the first time in three years, but as the Ravens brass had learned over that period, none of it would matter relative to their championship aspirations if the next big swing they were making at quarterback didn't pan out. After five-plus seasons of going to the proverbial plate and whiffing, this one would need to be, if not a home run, that a hard-hit, stand-up double to stabilize things. Would Steve McNair turn out to be that guy for the Ravens? It was worth a shot. Just look at everyone else they had trotted out there in the years before him. How did such a smart and stable organization get to this breaking point with the most important position in the sport heading into the 06 season? Well, it's kind of a long story. When Brian Billick took over in 1999, some of the team's bigger personalities like Ray Lewis would take their cues from him and run with them. He had not been the organization's first choice to replace Ted Marchabroda after his 1998 ousting. That had in fact been Mike Holmgren, who might have been a great hire as well, but wound up heading to Seattle to take a job with the Seahawks. Ozzie Newsom had been handpicked by Art Modell and his son David, the team's president, to lead the search committee for a new coach. When Holmgren left the picture, they turned their sights towards Billick. Brian was impressive for several reasons, Newsom said, reflecting on the interview process. First, I talked to a lot of people about him, and so did David. Chris Carter told me that they had hated each other at first, but that had changed, and they got along well. I asked him if he could come play for him if he had the chance, and he said absolutely. Warren Moon said the same thing. Bill Walsh said we couldn't go wrong if we hired him. But what sold me was when we talked to him. There just wasn't any of the same old rhetoric you would hear from guys when they're trying to get a job. He was above the curve. I could tell he was a risk taker. At one point, I asked him how we would resolve differences we might have on the draft and the roster. Did he think we would be able to compromise? And he just said, no, Ozzy, I don't believe in compromise. Because if we compromise, then neither of us is responsible for the final decision. I like that. Then he said that either I would convince him or he would convince me. I like that too. I also like the fact that he was upfront about feeling that way. Wade Harmon got to start coaching under Billiken College and was eventually brought with him to Baltimore in 1999 to coach tight ends. The thing that stands out to him to this day about Brian was his intellect. Very intelligent, very organized, got a uh, funny sense of humor if you, if you get to know him. Um, good, good human being, but really, you know, really dedicated to his craft, really was on point, you know, trying to stay on, on cutting edge of things and studying. And, you know, he was, he did a good job. All these analytics and stuff that people use, you know, he was way ahead on a lot of that stuff. In a world of cartoonishly workaholic football guys who seem to take pride in their singular obsession with nothing but the game itself, Billick was a unique entity. He quoted Shakespeare, was a student of history, and had a glib air about him that seemed to stem from his belief that he was always the smartest guy in the room. All of this was on full display in a sit-down interview he did with NFL film Steve Sable in his home in Owings Mills after a few years on the job. You have to be aware 
of your image now. You know, and when you think of, of you now, you think of words like brash, innovative, manipulative, arrogant, egotistical, eccentric. The, the list can go on and on. He was portrayed nationally and obviously in a negative way as being arrogant, egotistical, that whole thing. Well, we've known that all this time. <laughs> I've always said that at the very least, at least I'm consistently arrogant, egotistical, and eccentric. It's a very fine line and someone's going to have to tell me the difference between arrogance and self-confidence. The person to do that was not going to be Ozzie Newsome, who quickly saw that Billick's brash nature was a perfect fit for the type of roster he was building. It wasn't going to be Art Modell either, as the team's owner was aging out of the role and happy to let his football minds have their run of show by the time Billick entered the picture. But his bravado would not be mistaken for a lack of communication savvy, and it was that sensibility that allowed him to navigate his way through all levels of an organization and earn the free will to act with the carte blanche he would eventually have. That he had to develop skill set like this was no accident. One of his first NFL jobs was as a public relations assistant for the Bill Walsh 49ers. You haven't suffered through the baptism of fire until you've gone through a 2-14 and 14 and a 6-10 and 10 season with Bill Walsh. Those were tough growing years. But it was a great tutelage for me because it exposed me to every aspect of the organization. And the things I learned in those two years, I've carried with me through my entire career. Did you, like, have to get coffee for the career? <laughs> my first major job was in the, our first draft, and I was in charge of setting up breakfast for the draft. Those people came in, and I had a spread of donuts and juices and milk like you couldn't believe. But I had just come from BYU. It never occurred to me that anybody would want coffee at 4 o'clock in the morning. Now, at BYU, that, well, you can't have caffeine. If right, right. It's the LDS institution, even though I'm not, I'm not Mormon, uh, they don't allow any caffeine. And so, and I had never drunk coffee in my life. I couldn't understand why anybody else would drink coffee. <laughs> so my first major job in the NFL, I failed miserably. Hence, for two years, it was, hey, coffee boy, come here. <laughs> but whether the coffee boy incident was a motivator to rise above his station or he always possessed it intrinsically, one thing became very clear from early on in his tenure. Brian Billick was a born leader of men. I think a good coach will do anything he can, in any way he can, to get his point across. It would be ridiculous on my part to think that I am that eloquent, that great a motivator, that at some point the guys don't just get tired of hearing the same thing from me. I love movies. I love going to movies. I love watching movies. And at any number of times, there'll be something that I will see and it'll occur to me, you know what, I can use that at some point with my team. Give me an example of one. In the movie The Fugitive, when Harrison Ford's character, The Fugitive, is underneath some type of dam or an aqueduct, and Tommy Lee Jones, who's the marshal, chasing him, who's single-minded. This is the guy I'm supposed to get. This is my job is to track him down. Well, Harrison Ford has a gun, saying, almost in an impassioned plea, I didn't kill my wife. Don't chase me anymore. Leave me alone because I didn't kill my wife. And Tommy Lee Jones, looking down the barrel of a gun, looks up and says, I don't care. I don't care if you're innocent. I don't care if you didn't kill your wife. It's my job to hunt you down. I'm going to hunt you down. And, and I showed that to my players kind of to symbolize, look, don't make excuses. doesn't matter if you're right, if you're wrong, whether you're deserving or not. Just do your job. And we call it the fugitive rule. That's a good good clip but it's a shame that we couldn't we can't afford that you know <laughs> is there a b movie maybe that you could think of well normally you, you gotta you, you gotta pull problems we could show the movie Patton is one that you could draw a number of them there's a scene where there's a line of of artillery and, and troops moving along and they're being strafed by a german plane and they're at a dead stop 
and they're at a bridge and Patton weaves through the troops in his jeep and, and he comes to the front of the column that's stuck on a bridge because there's a peasant with two jackasses that have just stopped on the bridge that won't move. Jackasses? And he pulls out his pearl-handled guns and he shoots both jackasses and dumps them off the bridge. Now the symbolism's obvious. I'm not going to let an entire team be held up or, or fail because of a couple jackasses. And if you're a jackass, you're going off the edge of the bridge. What a play doesn't work and it's a player's fault. Do you make it a point to just nail the guy right there on the sidelines or is it something that that you might get him alone and talk to him you would love to have the time and the wherewithal to put the warm fuzzy arm around the player and say gee you know what uh, i really don't think that was the most uh, uh efficient way for you to go about doing that and i think we need to reanalyze the way that you're approaching this particular player game when sometimes you just need to cut to the chase and say Damn it, you screwed up. Damn it, Cornell! That's two back to back! That's two back to back! That's on you! Now you're getting drawn into their boat and it's killing us! Now get your head out of your ass and play! To slap them back into focus, maybe. For them to recognize when it's something that you know they're capable of doing, that you've got to cut to the heart of it. That's Bush League! You didn't even look at the 30-second clock. 40 seconds. You didn't even look. Trying to make something happen, you're not even looking at the clock. That's not being a professional, Chris. But I've also learned you can't let just your frustration manifest itself by chewing out a player. Am I just letting off steam and, and chewing them out? That serves no purpose. That's not being a good teacher. If a good chewing out serves a purpose, then you got to be able to do it. Jonathan Ogden had been there since the franchise's very first days and was one of the old guard who would have to adjust to life under Billick. For his part, he reflected positively on his relationship with Billick as a head coach, boiling down his strengths rather succinctly. Brian Billick is... <laughs> I love playing for Brian. And Brian is a very nice guy. He's a very good coach. Um, I appreciated... What I appreciated about him most was the fact that he treated you like a man. You know, we had a set schedule. You know, we didn't... He didn't try to pull any tricks on us. And he let us know what how he was going to run things. And that's one thing I always appreciated about him. Um, you know, we didn't hang out and have beers, but I mean, Bill and Tom Brady didn't hang out and have beers either. So, I mean, it's kind of the way it is sometimes. In 1999, Billick's first season on the job, the Ravens went 8-8 eight and eight, with the young team's first season ever at 500, representing a strong sign of progress for what had effectively been an expansion team in 1996. In his second year, Baltimore won the Super Bowl out of nowhere, leaving an indelible stamp on America's psyche as a nasty, punishing, and above all, fearsome team that was led by its historic defense and run-oriented, ball-control offense. Billick had made the decision to switch quarterbacks, from the hot and cold Tony Banks to the steady, if unremarkable, hand of Trent Dilfer halfway through the season, a choice that would prove to be a masterstroke in retrospect. Having made his bones as Dennis Green's offensive coordinator in Minnesota, where he set records with electric talents like Randall Cunningham and Randy Moss, Billick was brought to Baltimore to bring an innovative offensive style of football that would fill seats in the newly constructed PSI Net Stadium. By the time he got the opportunity to be a head coach, the attack-minded Billick wasn't used to winning with punishing defense and a lackluster passing game. But in Baltimore's 2000 season, his second year on the job, he put his philosophical druthers aside and rode the hot hand of all the combined elements that created a perfect storm in which an unprecedented champion would be crowned. 
Maybe Billick's remarks on compromise to Newsom had been exaggerated a bit, because as you'll hear in this soundbite from that season, he was putting his entire identity as a coach on the line in order to get the best out of his team. If we go to a Super Bowl like this, I may never throw another pass for the rest of my life. Earn my degree from BYU. The Ravens' approach to that season harkened back to what the iconic 1985 Chicago Bears had been able to do, solidifying their place as one of the best defenses in NFL history. The only question remaining after doing it was, could they do it again? Perhaps the better question was, did they even want to try and do it again right away? Once you win a Super Bowl uh, the, and you've shown you can do it, uh, the fans don't want anything less. I mean, anything, I mean, anything less becomes somewhat of a disappointment. Uh, if you've never done it, uh, it's just sort of a different mentality. But if you have done it, uh, that people think, oh, okay, well, why didn't we do it this year? And, and you know, what went wrong? And, and, and so it's what went wrong, not what, what went right. And so uh, there's no question that from that point forward, uh, the Ravens saw themselves, and I think correctly, as Super Bowl contenders. Uh, and, uh, and the fans saw them, you know, had, had much higher expectations from that point forward. Oh, it's definitely a blessing and a curse because um, – you know, the, pro football is hard. It's hard to win. It's hard to it's hard to win one game on the road. You know, I sometimes I think people uh, there's a lot of opinion making on it, and certainly I did it for years. But when when you see it up close, listen, it, it's hard to go on the road in the NFL and win a game. Period. I don't care who you're playing, and so yeah, it's highly competitive. Just so uh, I, I don't think some people don't quite get the level of the competitiveness, the intensity. So it's hard to win, and you're just not going to win that much. I mean, the Patriots have really broken that model here, especially with a salary cap, leveling the playing field, and, and the scheduling, uh, helping level the playing field a little bit. Uh, it's just really hard to dominate, and and so the Patriots did it. I don't think we'll ever see that again. I mean, the Chiefs are doing it a little bit with Mahomes, but, uh, you know, they, they've had tough games in their playoffs. It's really, really hard to do, and so – yeah, uh, and, and if people are disappointed, if you get to the, the, the to the conference semifinals and lose, that's a pretty good year. And some team that maybe is having their best year beats you. That's you know uh, that's tough. That uh, that's the way it goes. It, and uh, but that's a pretty good year. But it, you didn't win at all. It's a disappointment. Wade Harmon went through this as a member of Billick's staff and was proud to help change the culture of the Ravens in this way, even if it made his job a little harder in the long term. I think once you set that bar, you know, you win that Super Bowl, I think that's always always what you can be measured by. You know, everybody says that's that's what, you know, what they're there for. And I think, you know, until you actually win one, you know, I think it's hard, you know, to have those expectations or at least realistically have those expectations. Um, you know, once you win one, and you, you kind of understood what it takes, and then you, you got good people in place. I think that's always, you know, what, you, what you're looking for. Um, I think that's always the standard, and I think that's, you know, the, the front office and the ownership and stuff. I think they've always you know, understood that, and they've done a great job of trying to trying to get there. It's hard. It's hard to maintain. There's, you know, um, I think the rules in the NFL make make it easier for, you know, teams to, 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 to rise up that haven't been as good you know, with the drafting and some of those things. Um, um, but, uh, you know, that's all, that's the standard. And, and uh, you know, they, obviously Baltimore has a very high standard for those things. The Ravens' answer to these new expectations was to try and buck them entirely. 
By surprisingly releasing Trent Dilfer the following offseason and replacing him with journeyman QB Elvis Gareback, the team seemed to be signaling to the league that they wouldn't be attempting to catch lightning in a bottle yet again. On paper, the move was supposed to be an upgrade at the position, as Gareback was more highly thought of than Dilfer and was seen by some as the missing piece that could take their offense to the next level under Billick's tutelage. It will be put to the test ahead of 2001, when star running back Jamal Lewis, entering just his second season, suffered a season-ending knee injury. Thanks to the addition of Gareback, the always confident Billick was, or gave the appearance of being, nonplussed about the situation. It makes me significantly more thankful that we signed Elvis, he said after the injury. This will change how we play offense, because we wanted to build 10, 14, and 17-point leads, and then count on Jamal to run out the clock. Now, our 5-yard runs might have to become 5-yard completions. It was a modern and straightforward take on where the game was heading, and Billick seemed to be more confident than ever that he had finally had the purebred at passer that he would need to overcome against all odds on offense. The difference between leading the league in passing and being mediocre is microscopic, Billick said. Teams throw about 500 passes a year. The difference between a 65% passer and a 55% passer is 50 completions. That's three a game. I think Elvis can give us those three throws. Whether it was the galaxy brain of Billick or more of a move made by his front office, he wasn't the only one on his staff that was convinced it was a good one. Every team in the NFL, you know, almost has is trying to solve that problem every year. Trent did a great job for us. You know, I, I think on, on paper, you look at it, we were, we were trying to upgrade things. Um, you know, did, did it work out as well as we wanted? No. Would, would it, could we have done it better with Trent? I don't know. You know, we might have. You'll never know those things. <clears throat> but I know... They were committed to trying to trying to you know Elvis came off a great year. Look at his stats. I think the the year the season he came off, we were you know excited about the opportunity to have him. Um, you know when you're when you're really good and you're you're trying to improve. You know you're some of your players that that you had you know to get, to get better. You've got to try to improve some of them. And, and you know, no knock against Trent. Trent did a great job, but we thought we thought we were improving. Baltimore was no longer riding along the fringes of the big leagues. After making the statement that they did in 2000, they had officially arrived among the league's elite. And rather than try and run everything back heading into 2001 and beyond by playing what people expected of them, they were shifting their philosophy a bit. It was a risky proposition to try and tinker with your identity like that, but gambling possesses an upside to it that can make the danger worth your while. On the surface, the ever-confident Billick was cool, calm, and collected. He knew that he had a special connection with the big personalities on his punishing defense, and he, along with those in the front office, felt strongly that Gareback was the key to really unlocking this franchise's true potential for years to come. The five-year, $30 million contract they had inked the veteran to spoke to that. Having helped get the organization off the ground as its first-ever draft pick, it was a lot for the team's all-world left tackle, Jonathan Ogden, to process. I get the feeling that the country is still trying to figure out who we are and where we came from, he said ahead of their title defending 0-1 season. We snuck up so fast. Are we a one-year wonder? A fluke? While Ogden framed it as a question for the rest of the country to have to wrestle with, here he was as the team's preeminent veteran who had taken them from the doldrums of expansion into unfamiliar territory and then to the mountaintop of Super Bowl glory at just a quick five-year stretch. And now, as was often the case in the NFL, a league that had rightfully earned the moniker not for long, another massive sea change with the only team he had ever known had taken place right before his very eyes. Behind the scenes, the quiet but calculating Ozzie Newsom had facilitated the dealings. On the front end, there was the relentlessly self-assured Billick, calmly backing it all up, as was his want. And in front of all of them lay uncharted territory for this young franchise, who for the first time was facing the crushing weight of championship expectations. 
As they would soon find out, there was no one blueprint for a title defense, and even less of one when the big moves you make to facilitate it don't pan out as expected. And when the dust settled on that, the Ravens would find out that the future was much scarier and more uncertain when you're expected to win, and are lacking what was becoming a key element to do so in what was a rapidly changing NFL landscape. As far as title defenses go, the 2001 Ravens actually did a pretty solid job. Even with Jamal Lewis out of the picture, they scraped and clawed their way to a 10-6 record and won a road playoff game over the Dolphins in Miami. They eventually fell to their AFC Central rival Pittsburgh Steelers in the divisional round, in a game that wasn't very close, but from an outside-looking-in perspective, this could be viewed as a solid season, when considering the fact that they ostensibly avoided the dreaded Super Bowl hangover. But there was a bigger problem at hand that was not just a 2001 issue, but a philosophical one. After signing him to the big contract and also committing to the idea that he'd be an upgrade over Trent Dilfer, Baltimore got very little in the way of improvement at the position out of Elvis Gareback. The eight-year veteran threw just 15 touchdowns against 18 interceptions and only 14 games played due to injuries suffered. The bust of a season for Gareback reached an ADR on November 18th. He had been injured the prior two games and watched from the sideline as backup Randall Cunningham, Billick's old muse from the Minnesota days, managed Baltimore to two consecutive victories. Gareback returned to the lineup on the 18th in a home game against the rival Browns, throwing three picks in a 27-17 loss, as boos rained down from the home fans who chanted Cunningham's name in a plea to Billick to put him in the game and keep the winning mojo going. Baltimore's veteran tight end Shannon Sharp was a three-time champion and a respected enough voice in the locker room that he was comfortable to speak his mind. Knowing Shannon as we do now, we're aware that he'd probably spoken his mind even if he were just a special teamer, but what he said about Gareback that day was still surprisingly blunt. He was brought here to do a job, and the job is not getting done, he told the media in the aftermath of the loss. If Elvis is down, he can't get any lower. In all of my 12 years, I have never had someone cheer for my backup to come in the ballgame. I've always been positive. I don't know if he can be any lower. Billick publicly played down Sharp's commentary by leaning on the cliche that nobody is more frustrated with Gareback's poor play than the quarterback himself, while privately placing the kibosh on players commenting on the status of their teammates to the Baltimore press. We're not going to comment on another player's abilities or potential, he told the media, recounting a team meeting in which he laid down the law in his locker room. If the mentality wants to be us against them, then we're prepared for that. The team is not going to be engaged in any conversations, speculations, and comments on another team member. They're simply going to dismiss themselves and the interview is over. It serves no purpose whatsoever. This team very much wants to stay together and not point fingers, and that's what we're going to do. Elvis Gareback is my starting quarterback. I don't foresee a change in that in the future. I have great faith in his abilities, and his teammates have great faith in his abilities. That's going to carry us through the second half. But despite Billick's protests to the contrary, doubt was growing among the locker room and the local media, the latter of whom had begun to zero in on the fact that Gareback's five-year contract was structured so that the Ravens could get out of it after the first season without taking much of a hit by declining a bonus option. Defiant as ever, the brash Billick, who could border on disrespectful of the media at times, was once again ready to hit back at this topic. Have I ever lied to you? He asked a pool of reporters. I can be incompetent, I can be a bad coach, I can be arrogant and egotistical, but I haven't lied to anybody here. Those who have chosen to isolate on Elvis Gareback's contract with the intent to convey an idea that we have the option bonus latitude and we're contemplating that latitude are wrong. That's not what it's structured for. Doubling down on his and Newsom's gamble on Gareback to be their quarterback of the future, he made a declarative statement that looks quite interesting in retrospect. 
He's my quarterback now, Billick said. He is going to be my quarterback next year, and hopefully the year after that and the year after that. The only thing that will change that is if he retires, which I doubt, or, God forbid, he'd get a career-ending injury. One thing about Brian Billick as a coach is that he wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid of opponents, and he wasn't afraid to speak his mind to the media. It's something that his former players, one of them being Trent Dilfer, looks back fondly upon. He constantly fueled this us-against-the-world mentality kind of using it as motivation. Look at the leagues trying to screw us, and, you know, nobody thinks that we matter. Got another hell of one on the road. Hey, Hey, right? No big deal. On the road again. You know, we get the short end of the stick and and all that stuff, and that, that was good. I mean, it definitely motivated some guys. He would also go out of his way to have his players' backs in situations, such as the one Gareback was facing, or even more serious ones, like the murder trial Ray Lewis had been involved in in the year leading up to Super Bowl thirty-five. As much as some of you want to, we are not going to retry this. It's inappropriate, and you're not qualified. Making this point the next day at the news conference, I did so more emotionally than I probably should have. You've labeled us sensationalizing. You've said you've disappointed in the media. You've called us three three or four different names already. What is your purview that you could stand up there and tell 200 people how to do their jobs? Is that I have the podium, and you all are here to listen to me. (laughs) Lewis remembers Billick's loyalty in the big moments such as that and the smaller ones, like when he'd defend his players' performance against the outside noise. He was the big brother. He was the big brother. He was the one that would get in the interviews and take the hits for us. The uh, pundits and the experts are going to pick this apart and talk to me about some kiss-ass third-down percentage or red zone. Hey, f*** them all. (laughs) Put that in NFL films. Bleep it any way you want, okay? He would. He trusted us as men. I don't think they're fired up enough, right? I don't know, man. I don't see it yet. So he was like, look, I'm not really trying to step on nobody's toes or stop anything y'all are doing. I need y'all to be who you are. For a coach that had gone through all that he had by acting as the voice for one of the more iconic and also controversial championship teams in league history, sticking up for his quarterback in a situation like the one that Gareback had found himself in amounted to a walk in the park for Billick. But while insistence that the Ravens wouldn't release Gareback outright to save money wasn't a complete lie, it also didn't 100% reflect the organization's frame of mind. After crashing out of the divisional round of the 2001 playoffs in a loss that saw Gareback throw three interceptions to the Steelers, the team's brass decided that something had to give between Gareback's large salary moving forward relative to the fact that he had been a massive disappointment to them. Ozzie Newsom attempted to negotiate down Gareback's salary ahead of the new league year, but the two parties found themselves way too far apart on what would be an acceptable number. On March 1st, 2002, the team released the veteran quarterback in a move that Billick, now somewhat backed down from his staunch support of the starter that he had staked his reputation on to an extent, called disappointing, but one they couldn't avoid. The Ravens gambled to not just run back the magic of the 2000 season, but try to improve upon it by betting big on Gareback had failed. Their first big test in the face of championship expectations wasn't a total wash as they had managed to win a playoff game, but as they entered the 2002 offseason, it became clear they had bigger problems on their hands. With an aging roster that had plenty of bloated salaries on the books, totaling over $20 million above the salary cap, the Ravens' front office, led by Newsom, saw their chance to hit the reset button, and officially took it. Along with Gareback, they released Shannon Sharp, safety Rod Woodson, receiver Kadri Ishmael, fullback Sam Gash, defensive end Rob Burnett, tackle Kip Vickers, and defensive tackles Larry Webster and Sam Adams. And that was just part of their purge. 
Fan favorite Tony Saragusa announced his retirement amidst all of this, while Baltimore opted against qualifying offers for fullback Femi Ion Badejo, linebacker Brad Jackson, and kicker Danny Knight. Finally, the expansion Houston Texans sniped two of their pieces in the 2002 expansion draft, taking returner Jermaine Lewis and linebacker Jamie Sharper. Both by choice and otherwise, the 2002 Baltimore Ravens were going to look very different than the 2000 squad that had hoisted the Lombardi Trophy and the 2001 iteration of the team that had tried and failed to repeat. Two thousand and two was indeed a lean year in Baltimore, at least by the franchise's new and high standards set by two thousand. A seven and nine record was looked at as a relatively pleasant surprise within the building given how much talent they had lost in the roster purge, as well as the fact that Ray Lewis, the stalwart linebacker and heart and soul of the defense, was limited to just five games with a shoulder injury. Beyond that, promise was shown by youngsters such as safety Ed Reed and defensive end Anthony Weaver, Baltimore's first two picks in the O two draft the previous spring. In the midst of a late playoff push that was unlikely and ultimately unsuccessful, Billick was upbeat about what he had seen from his ragtag young squad that season. I've never really seen him panic, he said. That's uncharacteristic of a young team. There have been a number of situations where they probably should have panicked. Hell, I was panicked. But they seem to kind of go, okay, this is where we're at. What do we do now? They listen. They follow directions. And for that reason, we stayed competitive, even in games we didn't play particularly well. You don't see sloppy play. You don't see guys quitting. They just kept their focus. Even after the purge, a smattering of talent was still within the organization in the form of players like Jonathan Ogden, Ray Lewis, Jamal Lewis, and cornerback Chris McAllister. That core, coupled with promising talents like Reed and Todd Heap at tight end, gave plenty of reason to be optimistic about the future of this franchise. But there was still one problem with this roster, and it was a glaring one at that. The quarterback position still remained highly unsettled. Back in 2000, the Ravens had made Chris Redmond their third-round pick out of Louisville. The tall, strong-arm slinger was looked at as a developmental piece for Billick to groom as a potential future starter. Redmond didn't play a single snap in 2000 or 2001, the latter of which saw his draft classmate Tom Brady go on to win a Super Bowl for the Patriots after being their pick in the sixth round, number 199 overall. It was by 2002 that by virtue of there being no established plan at the position that Billick finally turned the keys over to Redmond as the team's opening day starter. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the third-round flyer the Ravens had used on him didn't pan out for the long haul, as Redmond didn't show enough to retain the job. He was replaced halfway through the year by free agent journeyman Jeff Blake, who played out the string to the Ravens' 7-9 finish. The months following the frustrations of 2 were an interesting time for the team, one in which they felt like they had taken their medicine of a salary cap reset and emerged from that year with some bumps and bruises of a sub-500 finish, but nothing too serious that they couldn't recover from. In fact, you wouldn't have blamed anyone inside the building if the performance of the roster over the past two seasons had them convinced of a powerful yet very dangerous idea. That they were just a quarterback away from reaching the promised land once again. Uh, they, they tried to win again. They definitely tried to win again. And uh, the, the salary cap cuts came after this, the, the season after the Super Bowl. They really uh, they had done some contracts and uh, they were up against it salary cap wise. And they, they really had to cut a bunch of guys and pretty much start over, not start over, but they, they, they had to go back to square one to some degree after the 2001 season. So then in, in the, they made the playoffs, they lost. I can't remember exactly where they lost, but uh, you know, they, it was, they didn't repeat. And then they were up against it in the salary cap and they really had to tear some things down and start over. And so in 2002, uh, yeah, they were searching around and they felt like, well, uh, we need, as most teams do, we got to find a quarterback. 
The 2003 NFL Draft had a gaggle of tantalizing young talent to choose from, whether it was position players like wide receiver Andre Johnson or safety Troy Polamalu, or at the all-important position of quarterback, where there sat four distinct first-round talents as a cut above the rest. Atop the board sat USC's Carson Palmer, a statuesque pocket passer who had just won the Heisman Trophy. He was the favorite to go number one overall to the then faceless Cincinnati Bengals, who after hiring former Ravens defensive coordinator Marvin Lewis as their head coach, were looking for a shot in the arm to their franchise and fan base. The Bengals eventually would select Palmer, leaving the quarterback needy teams behind them, like the Ravens, to hopefully choose from the best of the rest. Holding the 10th pick in the draft, the conventional wisdom had Baltimore taking their choice of either Marshall University's Byron Lefwich, another physical specimen but with injury concerns, or Kyle Bowler, a strong-arm cipher at the position who was the least accomplished of the three but thought of highly for the potential he possessed. Our draft board is in place, but it isn't set in stone, Baltimore's player personnel director Phil Savage said a few weeks before the proceedings. The cement is still wet. Speculation was abound that the Ravens could be in on a quarterback and try to finally find a long-term solution at one of the few positions their otherwise sharp front office couldn't seem to figure out. The biggest question mark is the health of his leg, Savage said of Leftwich, but as far as dropping back, he can make all of the passes and has a wide repertoire of throws, whereas with Kyle Bowler, he has touch, but I don't think he has developed overall just yet. But he has that potential. The words potential and Kyle Bowler were used in conjunction a lot in the spring of 2003, with his freakishly strong arm as the main selling point for why a guy who never completed more than 53% of his passes at Cal ought to be worth a first-round pick. His number one forte is his arm strength, Savage said of Bowler, but he's had just one year where you would quantify as successful. The low completion percentage and Savage's latter point were the main concerns among a relative litany for a highly thought-of prospect. People that are looking at guys like Kyle Bowler have to be careful, Tennessee Titans general manager Floyd Reese said at the time. I think they have to spend a little time and really think about what has gone on. The kid has played very well his senior year. There's no doubting that. While Reese gave credit to Bowler for his improvements, the subtext there was obvious. He didn't buy that they were substantial enough to warrant using a high pick on the quarterback who had only shown himself to be potentially NFL ready when QB guru Jeff Tedford took over at Cal for his senior season. Colts GM Bill Polian, who never had been and probably never would be wrong on any quarterback's pre-draft analysis, had this to say on the matter. He was not on anybody's preseason radar screen among the media, the gurus, the Mel Kuypers, and people like that. They see the guy and say, wow, Kyle Bowler, we haven't heard of him. Well, when you talk to the player personnel director or GM, he'll say, oh yeah, Kyle Bowler is a great prospect. But all those groups of people have heard all year is Palmer and Lefwich. So where was this disconnect between front offices and fans and media coming from? A Washington Post article by Nuna Damasio from just before the 03 draft may provide some color on that. Last month, Bowler concluded his pro day workout with the unconventional throw he mentioned to reporters at the Combine. Bowler went down on one knee at the 50-yard line and threw a sharp spiral through the uprights. Since the goalpost is in the end zone, the throw was 60 yards. Since that moment, the last thing on the minds of NFL scouts was Bowler's college career. Bowler had made mention of this at the Combine, and while his ability to complete a silly trick pass wasn't the deciding factor in why he'd go on to become a first-round pick, it might explain some of the dissonance separating the hard facts working against him, i.e. his sparse resume, and why he was so highly thought of by scouts and GMs. NFL evaluators and decision-makers are smart, driven people with a level of confidence in their own opinions that can border upon irrational at times. NFL coaches are the same way. By nature of the job itself, their egos rest on the idea that they can command any room and get the absolute best out of any young man that comes through said room. 
When it comes to a collection of masters of the universe, such as these people making important decisions in a room together, it's possible and really natural that they talk themselves into their ability to succeed at doing just about anything, much less turn a prospect with amazing physical abilities into a top-flight NFL starter. And to be fair, it was all arguably warranted in this particular case. Newsom had made a habit of picking pro bowlers at the top of drafts and finding hitting gems late in the process as well. Billick hadn't quite been the quarterback guru he was billed as on his move to Baltimore, but he had made the most of a tough situation at the position on his way to the Super Bowl in 2000 and also won 37 games in four years. Even if he was often a bit quick to do so, he had every right to be a bit cocky regarding his coaching prowess. So when the dust settled on the process and it was finally time for them to make their choice at quarterback or pass on the position altogether, the Ravens, still only adhering to the still engaged but very much aging Art Modell, had carte blanche to operate as they saw fit by the time draft night rolled around. First off the board was Carson Palmer at number one overall, who had already tentatively agreed to terms with the Cincinnati Bengals on a rookie contract. No surprise there. The next two picks were wide receivers, Michigan State's Charles Rogers and Miami's Andre Johnson, going to the Detroit Lions and Houston Texans, respectively. The New York Jets, Dallas Cowboys, and New Orleans Saints picked 4th, 5th, and 6th. The Jets took D-tackle Dwayne Robertson, while the Cowboys nabbed cornerback Terrence Newman, and the Saints took a defensive tackle of their own in Jonathan Sullivan out of Georgia. And here's where things got weird. It's hard, Andrea, and it's nice of the players. I know Corey has always taken such a big interest in the draft. He's, he's, he is a Mel Jr. Well, <laughs> Denny, the clock is winding down on the Vikings. What's going on you, here? you got to like seven players. There's seven players in all of America that you can pick. There goes Minnesota Jackson. Vikings have had to have turned one in. Here it what? is. You can't pass. Jacksonville's on the clock. Who do they take, Mel? Well, I think you're looking at Byron Switch and Marcus True. Too late. Again, same thing we had happen last you year. You know what? Let me tell you something. What Jacksonville should have done because they Vikings, passed. they can turn the pick at any time. Jacksonville's got to have the pick well, already guess what, then? in the hand. If you want Byron Leftwich, if Leftwich is your guy, you get it in now. Right. Well, before, because remember, pass just means... 5, 10, 15 we seconds, doesn't matter. This, maybe doesn't there's matter. an explanation, but we went through this scenario last year. Second year in a row. Yeah. Jacksonville's on the clock. Turn your pick in. Why don't they have Leftwich or, or Gross or whoever it is Unless right Jacksonville and Minnesota what? are doing the deal with each other. Well, that's possible, but why do it? Well, there you well, go. Mort. The voice of reason. Well, the coach has a tendency to get a little excited. No, no. The voice of reason. After Mort. last year, we can't guarantee anything. <laughs> Two years in a row that they've done this. The card is in, but whose card? Who's card? Who's card? The suspense is killing us. Let's go up to the commissioner. If you're not right, Morton, there's some splaining to do. <laughs> With the uh, eighth selection in the 2003 NFL draft, the Jacksonville Jaguars select Byron Leftwich, quarterback from Arsenal. You know, oh, I, don't, I just, well, all right. First of all, to Minnesota for a moment. Well, here's Byron. We're watching him. And Jacksonville, I was hoping, let's do this first, guys. Jacksonville hung, and they got their quarterback. And I think, you know, they have a lefty in Burnell. Now they got a left wing. <laughs> the Minnesota Vikings held the seventh pick of the 2003 NFL Draft, sitting in the enviable position of having a top-10 selection with multiple quarterback-needy teams looking to move up and get their guy. They shopped the pick aggressively, and after burning much of their allotted time, they agreed to a trade with the team that held the 10th overall pick. That team, of course, was the Baltimore Ravens. The Vikings and Ravens had agreed in principle for swaps of the 7th and 10th pick in the draft, with the Ravens sending over their 4th and 6th round picks as compensation to do so. Their alleged target? Marshall University quarterback Byron Lefwich. 
Even looking back on the reporting, it's not entirely clear what exactly happened, other than the two teams were too late. With about 32 seconds left on the clock, the Vikings sent notification of the trade to the league, the first half of a move that indicates a trade has been mutually agreed to. The second half of that process being made official, naturally, is the second team sending in the paperwork to the league. But whether they lost track of time or got cold feet, the Ravens never sent in notice to the league of the move from their end of things. The clock ticked down to zero, and the Vikings officially missed the opportunity to pick seventh overall. The Jacksonville Jaguars ran to the podium and selected Leftwich, and their expediency allowed the Carolina Panthers to turn in their card quickly as well, picking tackle Jordan Gross at eighth overall. Minnesota had finally collected themselves and gotten a selection in, only in time to take Oklahoma State's Kevin Williams at ninth. It was an embarrassing episode for the Vikings, and they didn't hide from that one bit when facing the music. I'm pissed, said head coach Mike Tice. There is no other way I can put it. Looking back later on the incident, the Ravens acknowledged that a trade had been agreed to, but didn't offer up much of an explanation as to why they had left the Vikings at the altar. The deal was not consummated. A deal is not a deal until I talked to Joel Bussert, and I never talked to Joel Bussert, Ozzie Newsom told the press in the aftermath of the situation, referring to the league official in charge of locking in draft day trades. As the dust was settling on the situation, Baltimore didn't have much time to take stock on all the chaos. A few things were clear. They had coveted Leftwich, nearly had him, and somehow missed out. The question moving forward, now what? They still held the 10th pick, with a litany of good options to choose from, including Kyle Bowler, whom they had done plenty of homework on. But they decided to do a move in line with what was becoming known as the Ravens' way. They sat pat and took the best player available on their draft board. Baltimore just lost out to Minnesota. Hey, now, we got, now we got two now Suggs. Terrell is, Suggs to Baltimore. I'll bet you a buck right now this is Terrell Suggs. We know it is. It's got to be. <laughs> Baltimore, Let's see. Baltimore the pick is in. Here's the yes, My sir. God, this is this is like the, this is like a, a toll booth in New York. Tenth selection in the 2003 NFL Draft, the Baltimore Ravens select Terrell Suggs, defensive end from Arizona State. You know the Ravens sat there with their draft board, just sitting back on ten. They resisted, and one of their guys fell to them. And so Ozzie Newsom. Oh Newsome, my God. Let's do it. Oh, Although, this is what we call recap time now, huh, for everybody? Thanks, Gary. This, this does mean that Kyle Bowler, we talked about Kyle Bowler and Byron Leftwich Bowler. It means that Bowler now is not going to the Baltimore Ravens, which is what. And here's Seattle in. In this instance, that player was Terrell Suggs, a dynamo at outside linebacker from Arizona State, who would later receive this endorsement from Ray Lewis. He is going to bring a lot. He's very athletic, he's willing to learn, and what he brings is the same thing Peter Bolware brings to us, a pass rusher that can get to the quarterback on every down, and that's positive for the defense. Baltimore would receive their customary high marks for taking a player with equal parts athleticism and production coming out of college. After a down defensive season in 2002, it was reasonable to assume that the Ravens would get back to their stout ways in 03 with Suggs joining the mix. But there was still a quarterback-sized elephant remaining in the room. The Ravens had missed out on Lefwich, and the only two quarterbacks on the roster were Chris Redman, who disappointed greatly after finally seeing action, and Anthony Wright, a journeyman QB who'd spent most of his time in Baltimore on the practice squad up to that point. A confluence of many things seemed to be coming together on that draft night for the Ravens. It stemmed from instability at quarterback, from the salary cap purge of 2 making them feel ready to go for it again, perhaps from Steve Bishotti's reign over the organization looming just a year away. All of it seemed to blend together to give the Ravens the second win to jump back up into the first round that night. As the picks rolled on after they made their move at 10, Baltimore still felt strongly about one guy that they had taken a pass on, and ostensibly already chosen another guy over, but missed out on. That guy, of course, 
was Kyle Bowler. Set up to talk with him and Willis uh, is back at home. But there's been a trade here. New England uh, has traded their second first round pick. Uh, actually, they're involved in two trades already uh, to the Baltimore Ravens. Now, it's got to be Bowler, right? Is. This, is, this, is, this is the spot, it right? It is Bowler, no question. Here's the quarterback. Here's the next quarterback. Let's go to the commissioner. With the 19th selection in the 2003 NFL Draft, the Baltimore Ravens select Kyle Bowler, quarterback, University of California. Well, now let's just say this. They got him at about the right slot. They waited, they waited, they waited, they waited, and that's about the right except, slot. Except that Kyle Bowler was the 10th rated player on the Baltimore Ravens board, except Suggs was ahead of him. And Ozzie Newsom and that staff always stayed true to their board. So here they get Terrell Suggs, who was rated ahead of Bowler. But when they see Bowler, a 10th ranked player on their board, slide down, they're not afraid to go up and get him. That's why Ozzie Newsom and this group among the best in the league. Let me say this, more pressure now, squarely on the shoulders of Brian Billick and Matt Cavanaugh They get the most out of Kyle Bowler. Keep that progression going. Don't let him fall back into bad habits. Now he's not around Jeff Tedford. I'm going to keep a close eye on this kid. He's now in Baltimore with me. So I think when you look at Kyle Bowler, all the talent in the world, no question about that size, great arm, 4'6 speed and all that. He wants to learn. He was a guy with worked with Brian Billick, went into that film room, broke down films, impressed Brian Billick. But now the productivity on the field, Chris Redmond's still in that mix. How does he develop when the Ravens over the years have not been able to develop a quarterback? Well, I tell you, here's the best thing. Baltimore called up the New England Patriots, who held the 19th overall pick, and moved their second rounder and their first round pick in 2004 for the chance to take Bowler at 19. It might seem like a bit of a panic move after missing out on Leftwich in retrospect, but it's clear listening to some of their commentary after the pick, the Ravens really did like Bowler, and especially considering they got him in the middle of the first round. Billick would explain that thought process years later on John Eisenberg's What Happened to That Guy podcast. Whatever box you want to check when you evaluate a quarterback, and there's a lot of different people that will have different perspectives on that, he checked off every box you could ever want. Strong arm, good athlete, smart kid, loved the game, had a certain personality that people were drawn to, you know, in terms of that leadership, had plenty of want. At the time, he also felt it represented great draft value. We developed a sort of comfort zone, Bill said of the process to move up for him. We trusted our abilities to evaluate. We're not going to be afraid if the value presented itself at the right price. And thus, a big roll of the dice was once again made. Gareback had simply been an appetizer, and one the Ravens would send back to the kitchen at that. This was the first real big swing that Baltimore would be taking at quarterback in the franchise's history. How it would turn out would prove to be extremely pivotal to a franchise that was starting to feel somewhat snake-bitten when it came to the most important position in all of sports. Of course, the gamble didn't pay off. Bowler was not as bad of a pick as some Ravens fans like to opine that he was, calling him the worst pick in team history and other such unflattering monikers. But the flat facts are this. Baltimore gave up two first-rounders for the promising young Cal prospect, and not only did he not become the top-tier starter they were hoping for, but he wasn't even able to turn into a middle-of-the-road franchise quarterback who protected the ball and helped their defense win games for them. So how did that happen for a guy with all the talent in the world, going to an organization that had reloaded and was very much ready to win again? The answer, as is always the case with high-level draft busts, isn't necessarily a straightforward one. It began pretty auspiciously, all things considered. After ending a contract holdout that was more common at the time, Bowler joined the Ravens training camp ahead of their first preseason game and drew rave reviews throughout for his physical ability, processing skills, which were considered sharper than anticipated, and cool, California kid demeanor that was quickly winning over his teammates. 
You can tell he's got a grasp of the offense, offensive coordinator Matt Cavanaugh said after one of his first sessions with the team. When he called a play, you could see he knew what everyone was supposed to do. Billick seemed reticent to pump his rookie quarterback up too much, but he was impressed as well. He seemed very poised, he said. He seemed to understand what was going on. The young gun continued to impress in August of 03, and in the brief span of a month of preseason action, Bowler went on to win the job of opening day starter at quarterback for the 2003 Baltimore Ravens. He had had his issues with turnovers and mistakes, but they were easily shrugged off as part of the rookie learning curve. Kyle has been very impressive, Billick said when making the announcement. His physical skills are obvious, obvious to anyone who's ever watched him practice. His ability to absorb the offense has been shocking to me. While the high praise and good vibes were flowing as Bowler won the job, the important caveat at the back of everyone's mind was that he did so without facing any real competition. Chris Redman and Anthony Wright remained in the picture, with Redman being the one in actual competition for the job of opening day starter. This was a predictably ill-fated bid. With Redman's only action in three years being the unimpressive 2002 stint, he wasn't exactly leaps and bounds ahead of a physically impressive first-round pick. Reflecting on it years later, Billick did admit that as much as Bowler did earn it, he had essentially done so by default. He was a very confident young man. The one thing with Kyle, when you take a guy that high in the draft, you got to play him. And, and that's my personal belief as well. You don't learn anything standing on the sideline as a rookie other than how to get to the stadium and where to eat afterwards. He came in with an organization that had been starved at the quarterback position for a long time. The expectations were very high. He came to a team that was very good. It is tougher for a young quarterback to come onto a team that is new and struggling because then they can struggle with you and you build compared to the pressures that even though you're a rookie and you're going to start, we expect to win. That was the pedigree here. We had been Super Bowl yeah. champs. We had a good enough defense in a running game that we expected to win. That's a different environment for a young quarterback to have to step into compared to one like a Baker Mayfield where he can go out and just play and just throw it up because what the hell, what are we going to do, lose another game? Right. You know, who cares? Kyle came into a more difficult situation in that regard. As the old adage says, Ty goes to the rookie, and considering his talent and perceived prowess in picking up the playbook, it would be Bowler opening the season for Baltimore on the road against the Steelers in Pittsburgh, the division rival of theirs who had knocked them out of the playoffs in 2001. It didn't go well. Bowler's struggles began in week one, when he threw for just 152 yards and an interception in a 34-15 loss to the Steelers, and they certainly didn't end there. Over the next eight games, he had multiple starts with under 10 completions, and only one performance where he topped 156 passing yards. Funny enough, it was in that performance, a 26-34 loss to Cincinnati in which the young QB threw for a career-high 302 yards and two touchdowns, that Bowler's teammates began to show some frustration. A 2003 Sports Illustrated gamer from Peter King details the scenes leading up to why this, quote, breakout performance was likely to be met with some skepticism. Patience was already wearing thin in the Ravens' locker room, it reads. Jamal Lewis, the NFL's leading rusher, told the Baltimore Sun last week that the passing game, sooner or later, is going to have to pick up. And tight end Todd Heap called the offense, quote, embarrassing after it did not score a touchdown against the woeful Cardinals on October 12th, adding, there's really no reason why we should be last place in the league in passing. Not to get lost in all the drama surrounding Bowler's play was that the Ravens were actually keeping things afloat around him. They sat at 5-3 and three ahead of a Week 10 game versus the Rams in St. Louis, a contest that would drastically alter the course of their season and possibly their long-term future. The offense fumbled the ball four times and Bowler threw another interception, his ninth in 10 games, before a collision with fullback Alan Ricard caused an injury to his leg. Chris Redman replaced him in the game, throwing two more picks in what wound up as a 33-22 loss. 
At 5-4 and four, and having succeeded in spite of their quarterback play, the team faced a critical point in the 2003 season. And in typical Billick fashion, the move he would make with his back against the wall would turn out to be a season-saving flourish. Anthony Wright wasn't much of a known quantity around the league, having started only five games in four seasons, but the journeyman who had been hanging onto the fringes of the Ravens' quarterback room for over a year at that point was who Billick turned to in the absence of Bowler, whose injury was going to be long-term. After a befuddling 6-9 loss to the Miami Dolphins in Wright's first start, you may have been correct to question Billick in picking him over Redmond to lead the way, but those doubts didn't linger for very long. Wright's first start in Baltimore is a legendary one in Ravens lore, one in which the frisky backup would let it rip for four touchdowns, all to wide receiver Marcus Robinson, in an overtime tilt in which they overcame a 41-24 deficit to ultimately beat the Seattle Seahawks in perhaps the best showing of offensive output in Billick and offensive coordinator Matt Cavanaugh's tenure. An emotional Wright won the Ravens locker room over that day with an impassioned address following the game. Dover's pick is up, and the Ravens the win! win. The Ravens win! Yes! That's all well and good, but you're having a baby in three hours, man. Must have been his day, because as soon as the game is over, he goes to the hospital to be with his wife when she's giving birth to their second child. Two of the more memorable days of your life? Yeah, it is. It's something that I'll always be able to tell my daughter. Wright's Cinderella story didn't end there either. The former undrafted free agent played out the string for the 03 season as the team's unquestioned starter, leading them to a 10-6 record and Baltimore's first-ever division title. Kyle Bowler and Chris Redman watched from the sidelines as the wily veteran took on the Tennessee Titans in a tense home playoff game, dueling it out with the 2003 co-MVP, Steve McNair. As a former AFC Central rival, McNair and the Titans were a longtime sparring partner of Baltimore's, but it had been a largely one-sided series with the Ravens getting the better of them for the last four matchups in a row. Not that day, though. McNair had been MVP of the league in 03 for good reason, and the physically gifted quarterback paired well with punishing running back Eddie George to give the Ravens' defense fits for much of the afternoon. Still, as he had done plenty that season, Wright rallied. With four and a half minutes left in the game, the Titans were hanging on to a 17-10 lead. Just after crossing into enemy territory, Wright saw a matchup between Todd Heap and a young safety that he liked and pulled the trigger. Second and ten. Wright launches it again. This time for Todd Heap. Touchdown. and he throws it up where they can get it. What a great call by Matt Cavanaugh, the offensive coordinator. They got the matchup they wanted. Tank Williams on Todd Heath. They take that matchup against the corner, but when you get a young, strong safety... Who's... It was one last magic moment for Wright in a Ravens uniform, pulling the rabbit out of the hat when his team needed him the most. He had stepped up big in Bowler's absence to save the season a few months back and had once again done so in a big way in this game. Unfortunately for him, the quarterback on the other sideline had a flair for the dramatic as well, and the Ravens were about to get a taste of their own medicine in that regard. It'd be ironic to see him get 100 yards against this team. And if he does, they're probably going to win. 11 yards would put them close to field goal territory. 
McNair from the shotgun. Mason. And out of bounds at about the 33-yard line. Boy, I'll tell you one thing again. When you send four and your offensive line gives you that much time, it's just nice and easy to look over the entire field and then find Mason coming across. Look at the blocking up front, folks. This is easy. He just steps up into that lane. Nobody is on Mason. There's nobody around Steve McNair either. And Mason does the smart thing out of bounds. Get as much as you can. Steve McNair and Derek Mason. They were a dynamite tandem for the Titans, no doubt one of the elements of their team that made them more dynamic than the Ravens that year. They hooked up near midfield to push the ball into Baltimore territory, taking advantage of space left by a defense that had been inflicted plenty of punishment by Eddie George throughout the day. From there, it was a few runs and a long field goal from veteran kicker Gary Anderson that gave the Titans a 20-17 lead with half a minute left and ultimately the win. Now he makes it, quipped Billick on the sideline, who had been on the Vikings team that crashed out of the NFC Championship game in 1998 thanks to a missed chip shot from the very same Anderson. It was a cruel twist of fate for a coach who was starting to get used to them. And that's a place that neither Billick nor the Ravens wanted to be. But such is life and such is sports. Three years earlier, Baltimore had gone into Tennessee and defeated McNair and the Titans in the divisional round on their way to winning Super Bowl 35. The lasting image of that game is Ray Lewis picking off an errant pass, returning it for a touchdown, and raising a finger to his lips to quiet down a crowd that had sent plenty of jabs his way both that year and before. There was no love lost in the rivalry to speak of, but little did either team know the whole affair was going to be coming to a gradual end as the years wore on. Part of that had to do with the dissolution of the AFC Central, making them division rivals no more. And part of it had to do with the fact that unfortunately for both of them, their collective time as two AFC superpowers was coming to a bit of a halt. A big part of that would be issues at the quarterback position, continued ones for Baltimore and new ones for the Titans. A reality that might have shocked the team who felt they had a promising first-round talent on the roster, and the other one who had the league's MVP on the field that night. Not for long, indeed. As the page turned to 2004, major change was afoot for the Ravens. At least at the very top level of the organization. In the opening months of the year, the transfer of ownership from Art Modell to Steve Bishotti would eventually take place, with Bishotti hiring D.C. lawyer Dick Cass to eventually replace Art's son David Modell as team president. All this took place very smoothly, as Bishotti's philosophy against rocking the boat would predictably make them. But even after an 0-3 playoff season, in which Baltimore had won their first ever division title, things weren't completely hunky-dory in the eyes of the new owner. While Bashadi had made it clear he wouldn't be a meddling owner, something his tenure would ultimately bear out, there was one football-related issue that he had on the agenda for a meeting that had been arranged following the Titans' loss. The future of the offense that had just put things together by hook and by crook to make an unlikely playoff run. Billick immediately named Kyle Bowler the 2004 starter following the playoff loss, squashing any speculation that Wright, who had performed admirably to close the year, would remain the backup to allow Bowler's development into the starter to continue. It was the correct move to make in order to give the former first-rounder a fair shake to see if he could live up to his immense potential after a mostly down rookie season was ended by injuries. No one, least of all Bashadi, would argue that. One thing that he did want to discuss, however, was how best to maximize that potential, with the future of offensive coordinator Matt Cavanaugh being the main item germane to that topic on the agenda for the upcoming sit-down. As Bashadi would learn, Billick was in favor of retaining his by-then-maligned coordinator, who had held that position for the Ravens since the Billick era had begun in 1999. 
Kavanaugh had called plays for the Ravens in the 2000 Super Bowl run, and he had called them since. And as often happens when offensive outputs start to go south, the blame fell largely to him in the eyes of fans and media for that downturn. This was something that Bashotti, who admittedly came at it from a fan's perspective, was somewhat sympathetic to. If for nothing other than a fresh turn of the page heading into a new era in earnest, the Ravens' new majority owner was clearly hoping to chat with Billick about. And while he wouldn't be shocked to learn that his head coach wanted to keep Kavanaugh in the picture, it was the way by which he heard it, and some additional things said that made the first official owner-coach meeting between the two much more contentious than either would have bargained for even a few weeks prior. The conversation itself would be prompted by a report in the Baltimore Sun, courtesy of the ever-outspoken columnist Mike Preston. But the truth was, much of what was covered in this meeting, or series of meetings of Billick and Bashadi, pertained to issues that had been festering between the proud and industrious pair of men who would be leading the Ravens franchise moving forward. Billick was a football lifer who turned his exclusive attention to the game after learning at the Air Force Academy that his hulking six foot five frame would preclude him from becoming a fighter pilot, as was his initial dream. Following a transfer to BYU, where he carved out a successful college career as a tight end, he was selected late in the 1977 NFL Draft by the San Francisco 49ers, but wasn't able to catch on in the league after a year of trying with San Francisco and eventually Dallas. He didn't stray from the game, though, getting into college coaching within a year where he'd find his lifetime calling. From his alma mater of BYU to a stint at San Diego State, Billick would eventually settle in under Dennis Green at Stanford in the late 80s. Green, the eventual deliverer of this gem of a presser. The Bears are what we thought they were. They're what we thought they were. We played them in preseason. Who the hell takes a third game in a preseason like it's bull bullshit? We played them in the third game. Everybody played three quarters. The Bears are who we thought they were. And that's why we took the damn field. Now, if you want to crown them, then crown their ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. He took Billick with him to the Vikings when he was hired there in the early 90s, and the pair would spend much of that decade together building historically great offenses that would eventually get Billick hired in Baltimore. By just listening to him talk, you can tell that Billick was born a rabble-rouser, but he's also made it clear how much he learned from Green over the years. It's probably not a stretch to surmise that standing up for what you believe in is one of them. So when Mike Preston, who'd advocated for Kavanaugh's firing in the Baltimore Sun, broke the topic with Billick, the head coach didn't mince words. Preston asked Billick if he expected to, quote, address the issue with Bishotti. There is no issue, Billick replied. Matt's the coordinator. End of discussion. It was classic Billick taking a hardline stance in one of his many standoffs with the media, and it was vintage Preston to publish his words in The Sun shortly thereafter. But one thing we were about to learn about the otherwise laid-back and affable Bishotti is that he didn't get to where he did in the business world without having a little bit of sand of his own. I do have a temper, he said, referring to this incident. I've always been aware of the fact that there are times when I need to rein it in because I'll say things I don't want to say when I'm angry. But when I read this, I was really angry. Brian knew that Matt was one of the issues I wanted to discuss with him when we sat down. When he makes that comment, it comes across to me as I don't want or need input from anyone, and anyone who doesn't agree with my position doesn't know what he's talking about. By the time we sat down on Thursday, I was still hot. Billick and Ozzie Newsom arrived at Bishotti's house in Annapolis for the meeting together, unaware of what exactly Bishotti had planned to talk about, but knowing that no wholesale changes were on the horizon for the franchise. Thus, they felt secure in their roles, and little, if any, concern about the meeting taking a contentious turn. Bishotti eventually brought up the Kavanaugh comments to Billick, who defended his stance that he wanted the coordinator to remain in town, but conceded that he could have done a better job in navigating the PR pitfalls that Preston had laid for him in their one-on-one. I wasn't going to sound as if I was on the fence about the issue, because I wasn't, he said. If I had said that's something Ozzie and I will discuss with Steve, it would have sounded as if I was hedging publicly on Matt. 
I didn't want to do that. But my intent was not to make it sound as if I didn't want to hear what Steve had to say. Vishadi had been admittedly irate about the comments to the point that he went into the meeting still angry about them, but as a pragmatist, this explanation made some sense to him. And it was in their talks that day, and over the course of several more, that he began to realize something. His anger at Billick over the Kavanaugh comments was warranted, but there was also some deeper issues between the two men that would need to be resolved before they move forward into their partnership together. And an unlikely partnership it would be. Billick was a brash, swaggering football guy who had learned from the podium-thumping Deddy Green, a prideful man's man, and a would-be fighter pilot who made a habit of commanding a room. The other side of the same coin was Bashadi, the self-made entrepreneur who had built a business empire out of picking up the phone, schmoozing clients, and learning to get where he wanted to be by working hard and humbling himself in the process. Football was an alpha male's game, and Billick's no-BS, piss-and-vinegar approach to it had served him well over the years. Ditto could be said of Bashadi in his field, but his blood, sweat, and tears were more metaphorical than a guy who had spent his life inside the lines. And it was that philosophical disconnect that Bashadi wanted to bridge between the two to help facilitate a smooth road forward, although the initial conversations towards doing so would be anything but what you'd call smooth. You have some bad habits, he said to Billick in the meeting. For example, you always address me as a young man when you see me, and my wife as a young lady. First of all, I'm five years younger than you. I'm not some kid, and neither is my wife. Second, I'm about to become the owner of this team, your boss, and you greet me the same way you'd greet a kid coming up to you for an autograph. That's disrespectful. This was the angriest Billick had seen the otherwise cool-headed Bashadi, and he hardly knew how to react. I don't mean it as a sign of disrespect, he responded. It's just a bad habit. I know you don't, because you aren't really that way, Bashadi said. But that's the way it comes across. It's a bad habit. Keen to get to all the issues on his mind in the open, right then and there, Bashadi continued. Another thing you do is you don't show our scouts enough respect, he said. To begin with, you're always getting right up in their face when you talk to them. You're six foot five. Most of them are about five foot eight. That's uncomfortable and intimidating. One of the first things I teach my salesmen is to give someone they're talking to a full arm's length of room, especially if you're taller than the other guy. Do not ever look straight down at someone. It's not fair. And you need to make a point of telling them how much you respect the work they do, because they work thousands of hours trying to get the best players they can for you, and you act as if they don't even exist half the time you're with them. Half the time when Phil Savage is trying to talk, you don't even let him finish a sentence. That last point particularly irked Billick, who felt that Bashadi had a misunderstanding of how healthy it could be to have a fiery discussion amongst the team's top decision makers for the sake of honesty and saying on the same page. I've always liked the fact that we can sit in a room, really go at it, motherfuck one another at times, and then come out of it understanding we all want the same thing. I didn't think Steve understood that was the way the building worked, and in some ways it was what made the building work. He also raised the point that Bashadi had to that point in his tenure grown closer to the personnel men in the organization by virtue of the fact that he'd spend more time with them on the sidelines at practice, while Billick had his hands full running the show. Bashadi conceded this point as a fair one, tacitly acknowledging that he could do a better job of considering Billick's point of view moving forward. The two discussed these issues for hours on end over the course of that meeting, to the point that they called it without ever really broaching the thing that had sent them down this path. Matt Cavanaugh's future. They met again a few days later at the facility to hash that out in earnest. Bishotti, no X's and O's expert by his own admission, defaulted to the same refrain that you'd hear from fans and critical media members. The passing game was the league's worst and had been in the realm since Billick had taken over in 99 and installed Cavanaugh as his coordinator. Sometimes you have to make hard decisions, Bishotti said. That's what you get paid for. Steve, don't you see? The easy decision would be for me to fire Matt, Billick shot back. I'd make you happy, I'd make the media happy, I'd make the fans happy. It's almost like a magic trick. Fire one guy, make thousands, including your boss, happy. But it wouldn't be right or fair. The reasons for our failures on offense go beyond Matt. For one thing, I'm the one who decides what our offensive strengths are. This year it was the run, so we ran the ball, and we ran it very well. 
For another, we had a rookie quarterback for half the season and an ex-third stringer for the second half. For another, we're not real strong at wide receiver. Firing Matt would be easy, not hard, but it wouldn't be right. Eventually, Bishotti was convinced. In the years since, he's spoken on the idea of firing people as a quick fix that isn't necessarily a good long-term solution for an organization, and it's probable that his row with Billick was formative in that regard. Perhaps more importantly, he took the entire experience as a positive, in that it was an opportunity for him and Billick to hash out some of their differences. The way he saw it, their arguments were simply a stepping stone into the future of a franchise that Billick was still the man to lead, and Bashadi hoped it would remain that way for the long term. I didn't want him to think for a second that he wasn't the guy I wanted to be my coach for the next 10 years, because he absolutely was, Bashadi said. But there were some issues that related to the way that he dealt with people that I wanted to get out in the open right away, and the Kavanaugh thing crystallized them for me in many ways. While feeling better about coming to some clarity with his new boss, Billick, for his part, was still somewhat floored by the experience. In his five years as a head coach, he had only known the then wizened and paternal Art Modell, and the initial portrait of Bashadi that didn't turn out to be the full picture. In short, he wasn't used to being called out by his boss on any of his BS, which despite his success in the league was something that he, like anyone in any job, could have used a little bit of from time to time. In the wake of the talks, Bill came to realize something. While the two men had different temperaments and had achieved success in different ways, the experience of having it out with Bashadi was like looking in the mirror for him. It occurred to me that Steve reminded me of somebody, Billick said. Me. He came right at you and told you what he thought. And if you didn't like it, tough. I certainly respected that. I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't. But it unnerved me. I honestly wondered if the two of us were going to be able to work together. My my attitude always was, you know, get me out of here. Don't 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 get in between these guys. You know, it was pretty hot. And they did not get along. Billick, uh, Billick uh, did. And listen, I liked Billick. I, I got along with him. I mean, we had knockdown, dragout fights. And uh, you know, uh, he was a guy you could argue with. And and at the end of the day, you know, he sort of had a smile on your face. Uh, I liked him. He was interesting and, and very well-spoken, and it didn't surprise me at all. He went into the media afterwards uh, because, uh, you know, he's a smart guy, and, and I enjoyed him. But uh, uh, I think he, was, uh, he could rub people the wrong way. You know, people thought he was really arrogant, and, uh, you know, in those days, at times, he was. And so uh, I think uh, uh, Bashadi just didn't like that, and, and it, it was— it was it was not apparent. It was not apparent to the public, to the media, to anybody really, until it sort of burst into the open there. No, I mean, from my point of view, no, I never noticed anything like that. You know, um, anytime you get a new owner, you know, they they, they uh, have they spend all that money on the team. They have the right to do whatever they want and hire who they want and and have put their own stamp on it. Um, I think uh, I didn't see, you know, anything. I mean, if there was stuff going on, you know, Brian, those guys, they, he, Brian was a true pro. He, he wouldn't put any of that on us or let any of that stuff filter down to us. I was treated well, and and uh, and I didn't I didn't notice anything coming down, you know, from you know from my end, you know, from the coaching end, or from Brian to you know from him to Brian to us. While he knew he was secure in his job and had effectively aired everything out that needed to be, the unease ate at Billick in the ensuing days. To help make sense of it, he called up his old mentor, Denny Green, for some advice on what to do next. Don't bother trying to change, Green told him in a piece of advice that lined up with typical Billick bravura. For one thing, you can't do it. For another, if you win, that's the ultimate answer. If you don't win, you can do everything the guy wants you to do, and you're going to get fired anyway. So there it was. The first real crisis of confidence that the otherwise unwavering Brian Billick had experienced would culminate in receiving the sage advice of, 
Just be your usual confident self, and most importantly, go win games. It was good advice, but that latter part would prove to be the key to job security more than Billick falling back on his fire and brimstone routine just for the sake of it. The Ravens had a strong enough roster to go out and do that as they just proved in 03, but there was a serious elephant in the room that was really at the root of all the consternation surrounding Kavanaugh. The massive question mark at quarterback. As the league shifted into more and more of a passing-centric one in the early to mid-2000s, it was imperative for the strongest offensive coordinators to have at least effective trigger men calling the shots for their offenses. To date, Kavanaugh had worked with the likes of Tony Banks, Trent Dilfer, Elvis Gareback, and Anthony Wright, just to list off the most prominent names. And now that Billick had saved his job for one more year, he, and the head coach who had saved him, would have their fates yoked to the fortune of young Kyle Bowler, who only had an injury-shortened, inconsistent rookie season to show for in the league. Baltimore could have all the talent it wanted on their roster, but the likelihood of going on another Cinderella run with marginal quarterback play was iffy at best, especially considering where the league was headed. To capitalize on the potential his roster undoubtedly had and keep his new boss happy, Brian Billick was either going to need to make Bowler work out or find another solution besides him, and quickly. As it would happen, things would essentially play out exactly that way, but not on the timetable nor in the fashion that any of the key players involved would expect. listening and i hope you tune in next week for episode two in the meantime you can get at me on social media at jake luke that's l-o-u-q-u-e on twitter hit us up at exit 52 podcast to discuss this and more check out our website the exit 52 podcast.com for written companion pieces for each episode 